I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 9. It falls to me to take up this wonderful chapter in our series, Pure Gospel. And uh, we've been in the book of Romans now for several weeks. This is the first chance that I've had to speak into the series. I appreciate that they gave me a very simple chapter without any difficulty, a chapter that's caused great unity to occur in the body of Christ. And if to make matters worse, in two weeks, they gave me Romans 11, which is worse than nine. So if you make it through nine, you'll be prepared for 11. If you're a partner at Trinity Community Church, you ought to be thankful that your elders are committed to expository preaching. Preaching that emerges out of the text so that what the text is saying, the sermon is saying. That's what expository preaching is. I said a number of years ago in this pulpit, um, I think at our previous building, I said I had a love-hate relationship with expository preaching. I love it because I get to preach through every text, but I hate it because I have to preach through every text. No joke. That means as you work through the books of the the chapters of Romans, you are eventually going to have to park at Romans 9. And lo and behold, this has come upon me. One thing we are committed to as we expound the scriptures in this pulpit every week is we are committed to avoiding being dogmatic, but having strong convictions. Do you know the difference? There's a clear difference between being dogmatic, and we can't be dogmatic because there are, to be honest, differing views of this chapter among scholars and Bible teachers who are better equipped than I am to preach. But let me remind you of two important matters when you come across. Some of you this morning maybe have dealt with this chapter, and I've done this with the Word of God to my shame. How many have read something, and it just and your immediate reaction is, I know it says that, but it can't mean that. How many have done that? I was listening to a pastor on the radio who was preaching, and he read a chapter, and he said, now I know it says that, but it can't mean that. And I was screaming at the radio in my car, why can't it mean that? I think it does. The two things I want to remind you of is, first, you do not have to agree with my analysis of these verses. You can respectfully disagree. These are middle-level truths. These are not. These are NSDs, non-salvation doctrines. What I mean is, whether you agree with me or not, this does not determine your eternal welfare. It's not a deal-breaker. But the second thing I want to remind you of is you don't have the luxury, nor do I, of deciding you're against a certain view simply because you don't like it. So often we shrink back. I'll be honest with you. Can I be honest for a minute? I don't like the doctrine of hell, but try as I may, I can't not believe it because it's in the word of God. Much of the word of God speaks of eternal damnation. So as much as I'd like to dismiss it, I can't. So Father, I pray this morning what Kelly already prayed, and I thank you for his prayer. I pray, Lord God, you keep me committed to the text and help us together to discern what you're saying in the ninth chapter of Romans. In Jesus' name, give me grace and give your people the grace of a hearing ear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Without a doubt, the most popular book in the 1970s was this book, which will magically appear on the screen, The Late Great Planet Earth. You see the timing there? That's amazing. I mean, the guys in this booth are incredible. This book captured the interest of millions of people worldwide. It related Bible prophecies to current events occurring in the world at the time. Get this, uh, on the eve of my book coming out in two weeks, I wish I had up 1% of these numbers. 10 million copies were in circulation by the end of 1970s decade. It sold more than 28 million copies by 1990, an estimated 35 million by 1999, and was translated into more than 50 languages. Wow. Still sells well today. Of course, the main focus of this book was the nation of Israel as the centerpiece of prophecy. Hal Lindsey said, quote, the most important sign in Matthew 24 has to be the restoration of the Jews to the land in the rebirth of Israel. Even the figure of speech fig tree has been a historic symbol of national Israel. When the Jewish people, after 2,000 years of exile under relentless persecution, became a nation on uh, 14th May 1948, the fig tree put forth its first leaves. Now, I, along with millions of Christians, cut my teeth on Hal Lindsey's book and other prophecy book. I was taught, and uh, I thank God for that, I was taught years ago to expect the Lord's rapture at any moment since Israel's a nation. Now, let's be clear. The question of Israel is important when it comes to Bible prophecy and understanding the New Testament. And so... If it is important, we would expect that Paul would deal with Israel somewhere in this epistle to the Romans, and he does in this letter. In fact, Paul devotes three whole chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11, he devotes to the nation of Israel. But surprisingly, listen, Paul doesn't say anything really about the Jewish people returning to their ancestral homeland, although they did, and that's important. But he doesn't say anything about that. In fact, he answers the more important question, which would naturally be upon the people of God in that day. It is this. Why did the majority of Jews, when God sent the Jewish Messiah to them, why did the majority of Jews in Paul's day, and for that matter, in our own day, why did they reject Jesus as the Messiah? That's the question Paul poses and answers in these three chapters. So you got to keep that question before you as we plow through these chapters over the next three weeks, because that's what Paul is answering or attempting to answer. And after each week, we will take up one of these chapters over the next three weeks, including today, in a message entitled, The Chosen Ones. The Chosen Ones. Now, we're in a series, again, a Roman series we've entitled Pure Gospel, a study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We have seen how chapters 1 through 8 are jam-packed with theology. If you don't like theology, you won't like Romans. The, The central truths defining the gospel are in this chapter. Hopefully, as each elder has shared sections of this letter, you are grasping how important it is to track with Paul's thinking. 
to, to track along with them. Beginning with Romans 9, we enter a new section of the epistle. Everybody agrees, for the most part, that chapter 9, 10, and 11 are a separate section, a new section. And not all scholars and Bible teachers agree on what this section is about. Uh, Paul, some look at these chapters as sort of a long parenthesis. Paul has departed from his main thought, and he's going to deal with Israel in a parenthesis, deviating from his main topic which he gets back to in chapter 12, according to this view. Still others see this as the main focus of the letter. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is what, according to this view, Paul's been leading towards all along, and now he's going to settle down and answer it. I think it's clear from reading these chapters that while this may not be the main focus of the letter to the Romans, it is vital to understand if we're going to grasp the book of Romans. There is a historical fact I want to give you that blows my mind, that could help us to understand why Paul felt it necessary to spend three whole chapters answering the question about Israel's unbelief. The church at Rome that this letter was coming to was predominantly, it is believed, a Jewish congregation mixed with Gentiles, but most of the congregation, the majority according to church history, was Jewish. And you know, in A.D. 49, uh, almost 20 years after the crucifixion, the emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, banished all Jews from Rome, and they left. And by the way, in literature, in church history literature, they were banished because they were arguing over one whom they called Crestus, which is Greek, might be referring to Christos, they just got the name wrong. So obviously, this banishment of Jews from Rome was occurring because of a debate over Jesus, the Christ. In fact, Luke, the author of Acts, actually alludes to the banishment of the Jews from Rome. In chapter 18, he says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Acts 18, verses 1 and 2. So Paul, uh, Luke, the historian, actually tells us that this is a document documented in history, and it was. That meant that one day, If you're a Gentile, you woke up in the Roman church and went to the Lord's Day meeting and there were no Jews left in the church. They were gone. And the only one left in the church were non-Jews, Gentiles. But here's the thing. Four or five years later, the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. And guess what? According to church history, it was about the time when they returned that Paul was writing and sending the letter to the Romans. So it could be that 9, 10, and 11 were necessary because the Gentile believers, when all the Jews were gone, assumed what? Can you tell me? You can talk to the pulpit this morning. What do they assume if you're a Gentile and you wake up and you come to church and there are no Jewish believers left in the church? What would they possibly assume? That God's done with Israel, that he's not saving Jews anymore. He's only saving Gentiles. That would be one 
Very prevalent idea. And when we get to Romans 11, which we will in two weeks, you'll see that that's exactly what they concluded. They probably said, God's done with the Jews. They've had their chance. Now God's only saving Gentiles. But lo and behold, after coming to that conclusion, one day they went back to church. And guess what? All the Jewish believers had returned. And they said, what do we do with them now? And Paul writes three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, to answer that dilemma, which was a dilemma. By the way, there's no reason to only look at this historical note that I am talking about. I think it's interesting. We can't say it, but we don't even need that to know why Paul saw it necessary to write chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I'm taking more time than I usually do in the intro of this because we're going to be parked at these three chapters over the next three weeks, and I want you to be prepared. We don't need historical outside data to discern why he thought it necessary to answer this question. Because in Romans 8, Paul dealt with the fact, and both Tyler and Scott did a great job in Romans 8, and they dealt with the fact that the church is now the elect of God. But if that's true, the question I would have if I'm not Jewish is, if I'm in the church and I'm the elect of God, what about Israel? They were the elect of God. Where do they stand? And so these three chapters are answering that question, and we're going to look at it this morning in four sections. We'll read as we go along. Look with me to Romans 9. Those who are worried that I wasn't going to get to the text. Here we are. We're there. We're there. Now, everybody look up here. Give me grace this morning to teach you what I believe this chapter is saying. You don't have to agree with it, but I'm asking you to put down your guard and ask, is this what Paul is teaching? Okay? I know you can do that. Brothers, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Romans 9.1. I'm in the ESV. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God. Yes, your text reads it right. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And a side note, did you know the New Testament clearly teaches that Christ is God? Just checking. Now, before the apostle jumps into a heavy theological discussion, he first lets the, wants the church at Rome to know how he feels about the Jewish people. And one of the things that bothers me about people who try to dis, dis, discern and teach and minister from this chapter is I feel that they often uh, don't feel what God what Paul felt and what we should feel when we're approaching these chapters. Paul doesn't rush into theology. He wants them to understand how pained he is in his heart about the unbelief of the Jewish people. And he says that I am carrying unceasing grief and sorrow in my heart. I tried to feel, I've been uh, in this chapter for weeks in preparation for this morning, and I have tried to feel 
the same burden. I have, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you I don't have the same burden that Paul does, but I want to for my people, the Jewish people. So burdened is Paul about their state that he takes the position of Moses. Remember Moses? In the matter of the golden calf where God said, I'm going to destroy, watch out Moses, move away. I'm going to destroy the children of Israel for their idolatry and make of you a great nation. And, and you remember what happens? That uh, Moses comes before God and pleads with him in fervent intercession. And you remember what Moses said? And he's not saying it just for effect. He means it. God, if possible, blot my name out of your book and save your people Israel. And God says, I will have mercy. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and pardon who I will pardon. And he pardons according to his sovereign grace. But Paul opens his heart up and says, I'm pained. So if you're going to understand this chapter, which is very technical and has multiple quotes from the Old Testament, ask God to give you a heart for the Jewish people. It's the tragedy of the ages that the Jewish people, the very ones whom God sent Messiah Jesus to, were not, do not believe for the most part. It reminds me of General William Booth, I think his name was, the founder of the Salvation Armies. Salvation Army did not start as a social experiment. It started, it was a gospel preaching regiment that included helping the poor and feeding people, but it was gospel-centered. And you know what? Uh, Booth had sent out a couple of missionaries, and they went to a certain country, which escapes me, I can't remember, and they failed miserably. Everything they did didn't work. They tried fasting, praying, preaching. They did it all, and it didn't work. And they wrote to Booth and said, help us, General Booth. We don't know what to do. We've tried everything. And Booth wrote back and said two words, try tears. So Paul is giving us his tears, what he's tearful about in the tragedy of the ages that the Jewish people, the people that had such incredible privileges. Did you read the privileges they had? They are Israelites to whom belong the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises to them belong to the patriarchs and from their race comes Messiah, Messiah Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now the second section, Paul responds. He's got an answer to why it is that the most of the Jewish people have rejected the Jewish Messiah. He's got an answer. And it's found in verses 6 through 13. We're going to try to get through 23 verses this morning. If I do, I should get a medal. But I, I do it for the sake, I suffer for the sake of the church. Verse 6. Here's Paul's response to the question, how is it possible that the majority of the Jewish people have rejected their own Messiah? And he says, Israel is a spiritual people chosen by God. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac 
shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had received children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now what does Paul mean when coming out of this? He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. What word of God? Well, directly he's referring, of course, to what I just previously said, the word of God that God said he would redeem Israel when he sent the Messiah. How can he redeem Israel when the majority of Israelites don't believe? And the way Paul responds to that is by redefining Israel. He says Israel is not primarily a physical nation, but a spiritual people who have been chosen by God. That's what the apostle's answer is. And we're going to see Paul develop that theme here, that from among the physical nation, God elected certain Jews unto salvation. He starts by using the example of Abraham, who had two sons, Ishmael, his firstborn, and Isaac. And then, uh, remember, Ishmael was born of Hagar, not of Sarah. And Isaac was born from Sarah. Ishmael and Isaac were the two sons of Abraham. And though both were his sons according to the flesh, The former, Ishmael, was rejected, and the latter was chosen by God to share in the promises made to Abraham. That's clear. Now, some reject this teaching by saying, well, it doesn't really, you can't really use Isaac and Ishmael because they had different mothers. Same father, but different mothers. Ishmael had Hagar, and Isaac had Sarah. So Paul goes on and answers that by citing the example of uh, Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, and says God accepted Jacob and rejected Esau, and they both had the same parents, mother and father. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, one our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, here Paul tells us what uh, the, the, the basis is for choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. It was God's purpose of election. Let me say this to you. I heard this from another preacher. I'm borrowing it because it's good. Election in this section of Romans is not the problem. It's the solution. It's not the problem. It's the solution. And for many of us, that doctrine is problematic. But for Paul, it's the solution. Now, this isn't the first time we come into the understanding or Paul speaking in Romans about election. He did it in chapter 8, which we couldn't cover because of time. Remember where he defines five incredible acts of glory by which he saved you. He says, those whom he foreknew, the rain is coming, sit still, all is good. 
those whom he foreknew. Notice it doesn't say that which he foreknew, because some people get a deal with this by saying, Paul is not saying God foreknew people unto salvation. He's saying he saves them because he foreknows what they will do, that they will choose him. But that, if that was the case, it would read that which he foreknew, not those whom he foreknew, but he foreknew a people before creation. We find that in the book of Revelation. Our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Are you okay? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. If you look at the two Greek words that make up this word predestined, it teaches predestination that he not only foreknew us, but he predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. There was a moment in time. That, that word called is really not uh, uh, allusion to just the physical hearing of the gospel. Everybody should hear the gospel, but it's when God calls people that are chosen by him, he, tell, he calls them by hearing the gospel. When I got saved, my friends heard the gospel that night, and I did. Now, of course, I had the good sense to respond. They didn't. I don't think so. It was the grace of God that let me respond, and grace alone. And then those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is an illusion. Not, not only he's going through five particular parts of our salvation, but it is an illusion to the biblical doctrine of election, and we should teach it with the utmost humility because it's a Bible doctrine. People commit two errors when they teach or learn this doctrine. First group is they are so awakened by it and so begin to see it everywhere in Scripture, they want to talk about nothing else. They ride it as a hobby horse. And I think when you discover the truth of this doctrine, it is found all through Scripture, I think you should be locked up for a year. That's my suggestion. But I find the alternative to be alarming as well. And that is people who want to ignore the topic altogether. They, uh, it, it, people don't want to deal with it. And it's a Bible doctrine we have to. I won't do it this morning, but I think it would be very telling if I asked by a show of hands, how many in your years in church life have ever heard a full sermon on the doctrine of election? I can't say I heard any sermon on it my first few years in church life. And I haven't heard it ever. I've heard it since but but rarely. But we can't ignore it because the word elect or election or chosen appears 22 times in the New Testament, most of which are references to our salvation, being elected unto the salvation. Now, people often say, well, you know, Romans 9 is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. And there are parts of this chapter in this section that are difficult. But actually, if you're honest, I don't think this passage is that difficult. It's pretty clear. The reason we might find it difficult is not that we can't understand it, but because we don't like what it says. I wish it started raining right there. It would have been a perfect time. <laughs> And one of the reasons people have a hard time with this is because they misunderstand. They bring presuppositions to the table when they're talking about divine election. For example, here's one, and that is uh, 
they assume that everybody comes with a clean slate. An election is teaching this one goes to hell, this one goes to heaven. The problem with that view is, guess what? Not everybody is coming. No one comes with a clean slate, as Scott so masterfully presented last week. Everybody has died in Adam. No one comes with a clean slate. God has consigned all, Jew and Gentile, to uh, divine judgment, wrath. No one comes with a clean slate. Everybody is guilty. An election is simply teaching that God is choosing out of the mass of humanity that is not, that is under the wrath of God. And he said, God told Rebecca before giving birth that the elder shall serve the younger. And same is true with the other statement we read, which causes people great consternation. But let me help you with it. When it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Don't take that out of your memory box. It's, in, it's a scripture. But you know what? I think it's hyperbole. God using hyperbole, intended exaggeration for the sake of, of emphasis. It's not that God just said, I'm going to hate Esau and love Jacob. It's that he chose Jacob. And in comparison of his love for Jacob, his feelings about Esau were uh, intended exaggeration. That is, God isn't arbitrarily hating Esau. He's just simply saying there's no comparison between the love. You know, I, I get that because I love all the children of the world, but I love my kids in a special way. And God has kids that he loves in a special way. One thing we can't get away from in this chapter, and in this section in particular, is the choice of Jacob over Esau was not based on anything either boy had done, but according to God's election. They, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, that is not because of anything they did, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we're going to get to chapter 10 next week, and maybe... I hope I get far enough that we can get to 10 next week. And we're going to see that preaching is still God's means of saving people. So those of us who hear about this doctrine of election say, well, that couldn't be true because God would not, uh, there would be no need for preaching. Yes, there is. There's a greater need for preaching. And we'll be talking about that next week. Sometimes people get around this Jacob and Esau dilemma and say that, the God's choice of a person is based on the fact, I alluded to it a minute ago, uh, that he foresees qualities in them that make them choosable. I just created a word, choosable. But that's what they do. But I want to know what qualities God saw in Esau and Jacob that made him want to choose them. Let's start with Esau. You know, he was a carnal man who despised his own birthright and after losing it became full of murderous anger how about Jacob? Maybe God saw things in Jacob. Jacob was a mama's boy who was a liar and a deceiver, deceiving his own father and then tricking and lying to his uncle. And God looked down and saw these admirable qualities in these two young boys, said, I got to have them for salvation. These guys have it. <laughs> now, Paul now goes on and deals with two objections that he knows his, right, his readers have. And they're the objections that everybody raises when they first hear this, read this chapter and deal with this doctrine. 
They come in the form of two questions that he knows is here will ask. The first one deals with the objection that always comes up when this doctrine is taught, taught, taught it's not fair. Can't be true because it's not fair. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, listen, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. Paul deals here again with the most frequent and prevalent protest to the doctrine of election. It just can't be true because it makes God be unfair. I mean, if God is picking people out to be saved, it seems unjust for God's choice not to be based on something he sees in his creatures. Well, let's look at what he says about the two examples. The first is in Exodus 33, verses 18 through 19. Let me tell you the context real quick. You'll remember the story. I just alluded to it, but let me go there for a minute. It is the story of the golden calf. And after the sin of the golden calf, God said, I'm not going to go up with you anymore. And Moses is pleading with God in chapter 33. The golden calf was chapter 32. In 33, he's pleading with uh, with uh, God to let to not withdraw his presence because Moses understands the only thing that makes us separate from any other peoples is the presence of God. Please don't abandon us. We need your presence. And Moses pleads with God to have mercy upon the people. And then he says, while he's on a roll, he says, well, I got your attention. Can I see your glory? And God says, no, you can't see my face because you'll die, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And then God says, when he does it and he passes by, he says, oh, by the way, Moses, I've pardoned your people, not on the basis of anything they've done or you've done, but I pardoned the people because, uh, he says, uh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's my grace alone and my sovereign preference to give grace that accounts for Israel's continued experience of the presence of God. We complain often because it doesn't seem fair. Let me ask a question rhetorically. How many of you want God to be fair? If he's going to be fair with me, I deserve one thing if he's going to be fair. Justice, wrath. I don't want God to be fair because if he was fair, we'd all go to hell. That's what we deserve. It's like a governor of a state. I've heard this pointed out. Who goes to death row and there's 10 men on death row and he decides to pardon three. Can he do that? It happens all the time. Does he have to pardon the other seven because he's pardoned three? No, the other seven get their just reward. But he is showing mercy to three. And that happens all the time in our court system, in our governors and presidents even pardoning. Friends, when we talk about mercy, 
You can't speak of it as being owed. If God is under obligation, it is not mercy. He was under no obligation to save you. He loved you. If there was an obligation, it was out of love. And so God's agreeing to go with them here in Exodus 33 is not based on any obligation except God's mercy. Now, he uses another example, which I would never have gone as a Jew. I wouldn't have gone started with Moses and then go to Pharaoh. But Paul's not real kosher at times, and he does that. And he says, for this purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and harden whoever he wills. In the previous verses, Paul uh, addressed whether it was just for God to bestow mercy on sinners. In these verses, he seems to deal with the fact of whether it's just for God to reject others. Remember that those he chooses to have mercy on and those he rejects are all sinners. And now he's answering, is it just for God to do that? The context is Exodus 9, verse 16. That God is confronting Pharaoh up to this time with four or five plagues. And God's telling Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you better get ready because the next five plagues are going to be really bad. It's going to get really bad for your people. And by the way, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God. I'll, I'll deal with that in a second. And God, Moses tells Pharaoh that God has raised him up into the place of prestige and power so that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And it worked. Wherever Israel went, the people of that day took notice and said, that's the God of Israel who vanquished the Egyptians. Everybody in the ancient world would know that God was victorious over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And the way he did that, when Israel went, uh, the, the way he did that was by hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, what does he mean by that? Hardening doesn't mean, let me, let me put you at ease. It doesn't mean that Pharaoh really wanted to bless Israel and be their champions, but God turned his heart and made him hard against that. That's not what it means. Hardening doesn't mean that Pharaoh wanted to bless Israel and God forced him to curse them. The best way to understand this may be by looking again, going way back to the beginning of our series, to the first chapter of Romans. Remember in Romans 1, Paul speaks in that chapter about how the wrath of God is manifested. And it's by giving people over to their sins. Sometimes, Paul says, uh, sometimes in his mercy, God restrains sin. But other times, Paul, uh, he allows it takes off the restraints and allows it to go full force, turning people over to their own heart's desire. And that's what we need to understand when God says he gave them up and turned them over, to quote from Romans 1. Paul is not teaching here, again, that Pharaoh wanted to do right by the people of God and God wouldn't let him. He, no, God merely left Pharaoh to his own hardness. In fact, the scripture says elsewhere, as I said a moment ago, that Pharaoh actually hardened his heart, and then later in plague five or six, I think it is, and onward, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which means he turned him over to his own desires. 
And all God had to do was to give Pharaoh over to his own hardness of heart because it was already hard. The sinful heart of Pharaoh was already affected by the fall. God doesn't have to change good people into bad people by hardening them. He gives them over to their own desires. So whether one receives justice for his sin or mercy, which he doesn't deserve, in either case, Paul's examples are showing that God is not unjust. Now, Paul deals with another question, which we'll take up in verse, uh, I think it's verse 18 or 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, what if God, and Paul's not saying it might have happened this way, it is, but he's saying this is the reason. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentile. The same question now comes up that came out before about the fairness of God, but this time it comes from a different perspective, a little different perspective. Paul knows they're having a question. They're struggling with this. If God is the one who has mercy and hardens others, is it fair for God to hold us accountable? Who can resist his will? How can we be held accountable? And we should notice that Paul doesn't actually answer this question in this section, but reminds us instead of the appropriate relationship between God and man. It bothers me a little that Paul didn't answer it, but he does give an answer, maybe one we don't like, but he does. He's bringing up the thorny issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And I want to go on record that both are taught in Scripture, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Spurgeon was asked, the great English preacher in the 19th century was asked by someone, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And he said, I don't reconcile friends. And these doctrines, though in our mind should be opposed, they're not. We're responsible, but we're sinners, and God has the right to do what he wants with his vessels. In other words, God's justice in no way relieves us of our responsibility. Paul says the real problem is our arrogance. Who are you to answer back to God? Because we're presuming to tell God. Now, I know a couple things about God. Number one, he knows a lot more than I do. And I don't understand his ways. I don't understand this teaching. I mean, I can understand it to teach it, but I don't necessarily track with it. But Paul, in in responding, says, check out your attitude. Who are you to answer back to God? David Steele and Curtis Thomas in their small commentary on Romans said, it is irreverent for creatures to criticize or contradict 
the actions of their creator, especially when one considers that God has both claimed and exercised the right which is being objected to. The objection is found on ignorance or misapprehension of the true relationship between God and his sinful creatures. It supposes that he is under obligation to extend his grace to all, whereas he is under obligation to none. If all, if all are sinners and have forfeited every claim to his mercy, it is therefore the prerogative of God to spare one and not another, to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor. Paul uses the biblical metaphor, you'll remember, of the potter and the clay. He borrowed it from Jeremiah 18. God's Jeremiah is sitting in his house and the word of the Lord comes to him, says, go to the potter's house and watch him working on the potter wheel. And he does. And when he does, the potter is mars his project. So he puts it away and starts over and develops a beautiful vessel from the wheel. And then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah said in 18.5, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The potter has the absolute right to make whatever vessel he wants from the lump. Doesn't God, if he chooses, have the right to do the same with fallen humanity? To make some vessels, he says, vessels of wrath and other vessels of mercy. This is exactly what God says in chapter 9 here that he's doing. Again, Steele and Thomas say, God is dealing with his sinful creatures by punishing some and pardoning others. It's doing nothing unreasonable or unjust, for both classes of vessels serve the highest end. The punishing of the vessels of wrath manifests God's displeasure against sin, whereas the pardoning of the vessels of mercy manifests the riches of his glory. In fact, in these verses... The thing that's driving the theology is God does what he believes is best to receive glory. And according to this scripture, the best is not that he saves everyone. In fact, the answer, uh, that seems to be the answer he's bringing here to the greater question, uh, why doesn't God save everybody? The answer seems to be that God its glory is best manifested by having some vessels of wrath and some vessels of glory. Remember again the example he just used of Pharaoh. At any time when Pharaoh rebelled against God, he could have justifiably been struck down by God. But God showed him great patience letting him see the plagues, the pillars of fire, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea, and ultimately the redemption of Israel. It was God's mercy that allowed it. So there it is. Not easy things to grapple with on a rainy Sunday morning. This may have been a difficult chapter for some. And let me just lovingly and kindly say that one of the reasons we might struggle with this is we might need a serious upgrade in our conception of God. Perhaps we're like the psalmist in Psalm 50, where God chimes in and says, you thought that I was one like yourself. And I want God to be like me. 
in some respects, not tell corny jokes. I don't want God to do that. Let me commend two books to you if you're in the habit of reading further about upgrading your conception of God that have changed my life. One is J.B. Phillips' little book known as Your God is Too Small. It's an easy read. It's a wonderful read, and you'll enjoy it. If you want to go a little deeper, I would commend to you J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which is a little deeper theological, the waters of the theological pool, but both are great reads. Now, Paul's going to show that divine human responsibility still exists. Having taught what he just taught, next week in chapter 10, he's going to talk about why preaching is still necessary. Because the question is, well, if God elects people into salvation and rejects others, why preach? And Paul says, because God has ordained the means of preaching to awaken those he's calling. And he has always used human responsibility or uh, preaching to to uh, for our responsibility. So if somebody, if a hundred sinners are standing on Central Avenue and I'm going to go to preach them, how many know I need to go and find out which one's God's calling and not bother with the rest? Is that right? No, I'm going to preach to all hundred because I don't know who God's calling and it's none of my business. My job is to preach the gospel, and that's why preaching is still so important, and we can't give it up. We never will. Some of the greatest missionaries in church history held this view of Romans 9 and gave themselves unceasingly, David Livingston, others, David Brainerd, uh, John Patton, others gave their lives to the mission field and they believed the truths of Roman nine, Romans 9. Hallelujah. How you doing? I've got good news. It's over. Now, I leave you in God. Again, grapple with these things. I'm not standing here. Do I believe that what I taught is the proper view? Of course I do. But maybe you're not there yet. That's okay. And even if you don't get there, it's okay. Because our body is not, uh, you know, we're not cookie cutting everybody. We're, we're, we're presenting truth. But you have to grapple with the text. Again, we don't have the luxury of saying, I don't like that, so it can't mean that. It may mean exactly what Paul intended it to mean. Let's stand. I want to pray that our hearts would be settled in these things. And we would continue to brood on them. And God would give us light. Father, you said in the beginning, let there be light. And there was light. Lord, these are not easy things to grapple with for some. And for all of us, really, there's a lot of mystery in these verses. Father, I pray for your people and myself included, that you would grant us wisdom and revelation to understand the truths that were sounded out. Lord, I pray that everybody would have a serious upgrade of their conception of the glorious God, a God who does things according to the counsel of his own will, Thank you, Father, for being such a God. Lord, let us come to grips with the God of Romans 9 and let us enjoy him. Even though we don't understand him, let us 
Allow you to be God. And I pray for help for your people. Father, prepare us for next week and the week after as we continue to unveil these mysteries. In Jesus' name, amen.